Luke 15, 11 through 32. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my, fire, of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. Well, we're continuing our series on uh, this very famous parable, most commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. And each week we've been seeing something a little bit different. We've seen uh, what it means to be lost. We've seen what it means to repent. Last week, we saw what it means to forgive. This week, we get to something that is, I would say, the most intimate, vulnerable, and, and, and powerful thing that there is in our lives, your identity. It's, it's intimate because it's concerned with the innermost parts of who you are at the very deepest levels. It's vulnerable because all of us want to know that who we are at the very deepest parts of our lives is loved and accepted. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we all have a fear that we're not loved and accepted. It's also powerful because if you did know that who you are is loved and accepted at the deepest level, that would transform your life. 
you would be able to live lives of, of inner personal security as well as outward relational generosity towards others, it would absolutely transform your life because you would have an answer to the question that's lying unanswered at the very depths of your soul. Do I matter? Am I loved? Am I accepted? So for instance, there's a movie that just came out recently called Lady Bird. It's about a very quirky, outspoken high school senior named Christine who likes to call herself Lady Bird. Um, her mother is very critical of her and much of the movie centers around their stormy relationship that they have with one another. One of the scenes in the movie is probably the most poignant for me, and it's in the trailer, so there's no spoilers here. Um, but Lady Bird and her mom are out looking for dresses, and she's trying on all these dresses. And every single dress she tries on, her mom is just nitpicking her and just criticizing her. Nothing's good enough. And it's obviously very frustrating for Lady Bird. And so her mom says, honey... I just want you to be the very best version of yourself that you can be. And Lady Bird just stands there with this look of utter defeat on her face. And she says, what if this is the best version? We're all asking that question. It's a heartbreaking question because it expresses so much, right? I mean, on the one hand, it expresses this, this yearning and this longing that every single one of us has to be the very best version of ourselves that we can possibly be. And yet, on the other hand, it expresses that deep fear that who we are at the deepest levels isn't worthy of being loved and accepted because we're all asking the same question. Am I loved? Am I accepted? Do I matter? We're all asking that question. This parable gives us the answer, but it does so in the most revolutionary, counterintuitive, and subversive way that the world has ever seen. Because this parable shows us that only the gospel gives you an identity that can never be threatened and therefore can enable you to live a life of interpersonal security and outward relational generosity. Jesus shows us how in this parable. And so this week, we're going to see four things about gospel identity. By the way, I've been reading Martin Luther King's sermons recently. It may comfort you to know that Martin Luther King, by and large, was a three-point sermon preacher. <laughs> so you see, it's not just us white Presbyterians. <laughs> Every once in a while, Martin Luther King preached a four-point sermon. We've got one for you this morning, too. <laughs> So let's see four things, four things about gospel identity. We're going to see the nature of gospel identity, the uniqueness of gospel identity, the experience of gospel identity, and lastly, the accomplishment of that identity, okay? The nature, the uniqueness, the experience, and the accomplishment of gospel identity. First, the nature of gospel identity. Um, now, just to recap, remember the story, the son comes to his father, asks for his inheritance while the father is still alive, which in that culture was the same thing as saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. I want to go off and do my own thing. And it was a huge betrayal. So when the son comes back to the father, he knows that he's broken his relationship with the father. He knows that he's revoked his sonship in the family. So he's got a little speech planned. And he's going to come back and say, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired servants. But when he comes back, he goes into his speech. But all he can get out is, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He never gets any farther than that because the father won't let him. He stops him right there. 
Instead, the father says, quick, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the shoes, kill the fattened calf, and let's have a party because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. The father reinstates him into sonship. And now here's why this is so important. In that culture, being a son was not just a a biological relationship. In that culture, being a son was a status. Because in that culture, family was everything. It wasn't like today where your, your identity really depends more on your individual achievements. We'll get back to that. In those days, the whole social structure depended on having strong families. So they would never divide up equal shares of the estate between the children because that would weaken the family. They would give most of the estate would always go to the firstborn son And it was the son's job to keep the family strong and maintain the family's position in society. So it was really the only way that they could survive. Now, is that kind of unfair? Yeah. And one of the things we saw when we were going through Genesis this past fall was that God is constantly undermining this um, practice. But in that culture, being a son was a status. It was a unique status of honor privilege, authority, and dignity, and it belonged only to the son. It was a very unique status that belonged only to the sons in that culture. Jesus is showing us here that when you recognize that that you're lost, that you're alienated from the father, and then when you repent, that is when you turn around and start heading back to the father, that God immediately rushes out to you flings his arms wide open, and now he bestows that sonship. He bestows that status in the family on you. In other words, he gives you the same status, the same privilege and honor and authority and dignity that belong to Jesus, the true son, the true heir. He gives it to you so that now everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. It's a new status. And you see in the parable, it's signified by the things that the father gives to the son. So he gives him a new robe that signifies honor. He gives him the ring on his finger that signifies authority because in those days they would use rings like that to sign contracts. He gives him shoes for his feet that signifies dignity. I mean, even today, shoes are a big deal. Um, It's a new status. He's got these Um, This dignity that's signified by these shoes. So, for instance, I talked about Harry Potter last week. Does it ever bother you when the movies change something that was in the books? It bothers me. Um, There was something in the last movie, actually, that the movies changed from the books, but I actually think it was brilliant. Do you remember Dobby the house elf? Um, In the the books and the movies, house elves are slaves. They're, they're not free. In fact, they don't even have any clothes to wear. They wear like pillowcases. Um, in the very last movie, um, well, in the, earlier in the series, Dobby gets set free. He, he, um, he's no longer a slave. And, um, and in the very last movie, I don't know if you noticed this, do you, did you notice Dobby was wearing shoes? That's not in the books. It's brilliant. Because the shoes signify dignity. It signifies his new freedom, his new dignity. He's got a new status. So much so that, um, you know, he actually has the gumption to defy Bellatrix Lestrange. And when she, you know, castigates him and says, how dare you defy your masters? You remember what Dobby said, that those famous words that are plastered on memes all across America? Dobby has no master. Dobby is a free elf. He has a new status. 
when God accepts you into his family, you have a new status. You have a unique status now, a privilege and honor and authority and dignity that is available to you and available to you in no other way. It's unique. But here's what's so subversive about it. Jesus says that it's available to everybody. You know, when we look at this language of sonship, the gender exclusivity of the language is difficult for us in our culture. But when Jesus said that to women in his culture, when the church said that to women in their culture, what Jesus was saying was, this status is now available to everybody. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. This unique status is now available to everybody. You become a part of God's family because none of that other stuff matters anymore. And none of that can keep you from having the status of a son. So don't let the gender-exclusive language throw you. This was incredibly subversive in that culture. The church told women in that culture, look, when you trust in Jesus, you become a part of God's family. And if you're in God's family, everybody's a son. This was incredibly empowering for women in that culture. And as a result, actually, women flocked to the church. By the way, just to be fair, men have to wrestle with gender-exclusive language in the Bible too because the church calls the church, I mean, the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. That means something. And if you change the language, you change the meaning. Nonetheless, one of the really interesting things about this is that as you go throughout the New Testament, um, the status of sonship was applied to every believer, but they began to use the language of children of God as they went on throughout the New Testament. Because every single believer now has the status. We are all children of God. They started to use actually gender-inclusive language in the Bible itself. Because when you trust in Christ, you become a part of God's family. You receive a new status. That's the nature of gospel identity. But secondly, we see here the uniqueness of gospel identity. Uh, Look again at the two brothers. Uh, Each one of these brothers has revoked their sonship. They've revoked their status in the family. They just did it in different ways. The younger son said, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. I want to go off and do my own thing. Uh, The older son, he stayed at home and obeyed the father. It looked like he was being a very good, dutiful son. But at the end of the parable, you see he says to the father, Look, I've been slaving for you all these years you can see that he does not think of himself as a son. He thinks of himself as a slave. Both of these sons have revoked their status, their membership in the family, because both of them are alienated from the father. They've just done it in different ways. In other words, each of these sons is seeking to establish his identity apart from the father, which is to say apart from God. Each of these sons represents the two primary ways that every culture has sought to, um, to find an identity. You see, in this parable, Jesus is actually giving us incredible insight into the process of identity formation. Now, what is an identity? You know, identity language and debates about identity are all over our culture right now. But what is an identity? An identity is two things. It's a sense of self and a sense of worth. Okay? First, it's a sense of self. We all have different roles that we play in our lives, whether your role in a family or your role at work or at school or in the community. We all have different roles that we play. Your sense of self is that core you that exists no matter what role you're playing. So it's your core trust, your highest good, whatever it is you're living for. It's that 
essential you that is identical no matter what role you're playing, and therefore it's your identity. Okay, so the first part of identity is your sense of self, but secondly, uh, it's your sense of worth. In other words, how are you doing at living up to that core trust or that highest good? And a big part of that question is, who gets to say how you're doing? Who's the one that gets to validate you and your performance in that role? So those are the two parts of an identity, a sense of self, a sense of worth. Now, Philosophers and sociologists will tell you that throughout history, there are two primary ways that cultures have done identity formation. This is a very broad generalization, but you have what we could call traditional identities and modern identities. Traditional identities say that your core trust, your highest good, the thing that you live for is honor. And the way it defines honor is it says that you sacrifice your own individual desires for the sake of, uh, of your group, your tribe, your family, your larger community. There's, it says there's a role. Here's the role that you must play, and it doesn't matter whether you like your role or not. You have to play your role for the sake of the larger community. And on top of that, it was the community that got to say how you were doing. It was your parents or your tribe or, or your clan. That was your source of validation. So in traditional identity formation, the hero or the heroine is the person who sacrifices their internal desires for the sake of an external duty, okay? Now, by the way, um, traditional identities are still very prevalent throughout many parts of the world outside of the West. In fact, many of you, maybe you grew up in a home where tra traditional identities are still the norm, okay? Modern identity formation is the exact opposite of traditional identities. Modern identity says that your core trust, the highest good, the thing that you should be living for is not honor, but freedom and self-fulfillment. And the way it defines freedom is this. It says, well, you reject the roles that your family or your society would impose upon you. No, your identity is something that you define for yourself. You have to be true to yourself. Um, no one else can tell you who you are. You have to decide that for yourself. And the way you do that is by looking inside. You can't get that from outside of you. The only way you can get that is by looking inside of yourself. Now, as soon as I say that, many of us, maybe most of us in this room are probably saying, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's the way you get an identity. The reason is because our culture has given us the script and it's done so without our permission <laughs> and without telling us that's what it's doing. We all have a script. This seems intuitive to us. It's very difficult for us to understand that throughout history and even continuing on today in many, many parts of the world, there actually is a very different way of doing identity formation. There is traditional identity formation and there's modern identity formation. Notice also with the modern identity that your source of validation also comes from inside of you. Traditional identities, it's, it's those who are outside of you that get to say how you're doing and whether or not you're a good person. With the modern identity, that validation comes from inside of you. Because we say it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, right? The only thing that matters is what you think about yourself. So do you see the difference between these two? Traditional identity says you sacrifice your internal desire for the sake of an external duty. Modern identity says, no, no, you sacrifice your external duty for the sake of an internal desire. Traditional identity says your validation comes from the people outside of you. Modern identity says your validation comes from inside of you. 
Now, we spent a lot of time going through that because only by doing so can we now see that the older brother is doing traditional identity formation, very dutiful. He's accepting his role in the household. The younger brother is doing modern identity formation. He's rejecting the role that society would put on him. He wants to go do his own thing. Gospel identity formation is utterly and totally unique from both of those. How? Because both the traditional and the modern identity, both of them say that the way you get a sense of self and a sense of worth is by how well you live up to the role, whether it's the role that's handed to you by society or the role that you have created for yourself. But either way, your sense of self and your sense of worth depend on how well you're playing your role. It all depends on your achievement, your performance. Gospel identity is unique because it's the only identity that says it doesn't depend on your performance. It's the only identity that's not achieved, it's received. It's not, it's not based on something you do. It's based on something that's done for you. How? Notice in the parable... The son thinks that he's going to earn his way back into the family, right? He's going to say, Father, treat me as one of your hired servants. So his identity, his status, his dignity, all of that is going to be determined by his own efforts. The father will have none of that. He, he won't let the son become a hired servant. He just bestows sonship on the son by grace. There's nothing the son has to do to get it. Uh, all he can do is just receive it. And notice, by the way, that the older brother, it infuriates him. <laughs> because the younger son knows he's not worthy of this status. The older brother knows it too. And it makes him so angry to see the father just give it to him without the younger son earning it. Friends, the gospel says that your worth, your dignity, your honor, your status in the world does not depend on anything you do, but on the fact that when you turn to God in faith in Christ, you can become a child of God that it does not depend on anything you do, but on something that is done for you. That's the gospel. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. It is utterly and totally unique from every other way of identity formation that's out there in the world. And that leads to our next point. We've seen the nature of gospel identity. It's a status. We've seen the uniqueness of gospel identity. It's not based on your performance, but somebody else's performance on your behalf. Next, we need to see our experience of gospel identity. I mean, what is it like to live out of an identity like this? How does this kind of an identity actually change you? There are lots of ways. We could do a whole sermon series on the different ways that this changes you, but let me just mention two. Uh, and the first is this. This gives you a deep interpersonal security. Gospel identity gives you an inner security that you can't find anywhere else. When the younger son came back to his father, his father gave him the robe, the ring, the shoes, the status, completely apart from anything the younger son had done. So as a result, his identity was secure. Every other way of identity formation is radically insecure. Why? Because it depends on your performance. If your sense of self and your sense of worth depends on your performance, then you are by definition going to have an insecure identity. So for instance, David Brooks wrote a great op-ed piece in the New York Times a couple of years ago. Uh, it was all about the increasing pressure that parents are putting on their children nowadays. Um, and when you read it, you realize that it really doesn't apply only to children. It applies to all of us because this is the cultural water that we swim in. So listen to what Brooks says in this 
um, essay. He says, parents are more anxious about their kids getting into good colleges and onto good career paths. Parents spend much more time in, than in past generations investing in their children's skills and resumes and driving them to practices and rehearsals. Parents shower their kids with affection, but it is meritocratic affection. It is not simply, I love you. It is, I love you when you stay on my balance beam. Children in such families come to feel that childhood is a performance, that love is not something that they deserve because of who they intrinsically are, but is something they have to earn. This generates enormous internal pressure, the assumption that it is necessary to behave in a certain way to be worthy of love, to be self-worthy. The shadowy presence of conditional love produces a fear, a fear that there is no utterly safe love. This isn't just kids, is it? This is all of us because we live in a performance culture, which means that all of us live with, as David Brooks calls it, the shadowy presence of conditional love. I mean, we're all a little bit like Ladybird, right? What if this is the best version? We're all afraid of what happens if we fail to perform. And notice this is true even if you're doing really well in the world. Even if you're what the world would call an incredibly successful person, the reality is the more successful you are, the more you hear that little voice ringing in your ears, keep it up, don't back off. You gotta keep your foot on the gas because there's always somebody behind you and if you don't keep your foot on the gas, they're always gonna be gaining on you. The more successful you are, the more internal pressure there is in their life and the more ultimately insecure you become as a result. The gospel gives you an identity that is utterly and totally secure because it's not based on your performance. On top of that, notice something else. The gospel disables all the old sources of validation, deactivates them, it, it diffuses them. So for instance, with a traditional identity, your validation comes from your parents or your family or your community. They're the ones who get to tell you whether or not you're living up to a role and whether or not you're a good person. So your whole sense of worth depends on what other people say about you. Now, modern identity, very nobly, I think, tries to, tries to deactivate that. But the way it does so is it says that, well, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. The only thing that matters is what you say about yourself. So you now become your own source of validation. The problem is that doesn't work either. It can't work. You can't be your own validator. You can't give yourself the validation that you need. It, it has to come from outside of yourself. You can't give yourself the verdict that you need. So for instance, um, one of the biggest forces or advocates or movements um, in modern identity formation nowadays would be what we would call identity politics. Identity politics, one of the main characteristics is the demand for recognition. In fact, depending on what sources you read, um, oftentimes identity politics is referred to as the politics of recognition. It, it, it all works around the principle that there's a, a demand, not a request, a demand for recognition from the world around you to accept and affirm and recognize the persons or groups that are being oppressed. Now, please listen to this. I am not saying, I am not saying that, inherity, that, um, that identity politics are inherently bad. In fact, traditional, modern, uh, traditional identity formation historically has been very oppressive to people that don't fit in. 
And so very often it is necessary and good that groups that don't fit would be advocated for, that somebody would stand up on their behalf to advocate for them. That is a very Christian thing to do. The civil rights movement, by the way, was essentially an identity politics movement. So I am not saying that identity politics is inherently bad. What I am saying is that even the loudest and most forceful advocates within this quest for modern identity are all saying that you cannot give yourself the validation that you need. It has to come out from outside of yourself because this demand for recognition says, look, if you fail to recognize who I am, you, you actually do harm to me. You actually, it causes damage to people when you fail to give them the recognition that they need. It's all based on that principle. So for instance, let's bring it to the pop culture level. You know, think about the songs that are the anthems for modern identity, songs that are all about being true to yourself, unleashing your inner self, and it doesn't matter what the world says. When you think about those songs, so for instance, Let It Go from Frozen, or more recently, one of my new favorites, This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. Anthems. Notice about these songs, these are not soft, squishy, introspective ballads quietly urging the singer to inwardly affirm and accept themselves. No. These songs are shouted to the outside world. They're big. They're boisterous. They're defiant. The music, I mean, the pounding beat. These, are, these songs are demands for recognition, right? Here I am. Accept me. Recognize me. Give me the validation and the worth that I demand from you. Listen, my point is that both traditional and modern identities only work if you're able to get the validation you need from the people outside of you. That, that is a phenomenally insecure way to live because your sense of self and worth are always going to be captive to the opinions of others. The gospel says that your ultimate validation does not come from the people outside of you. It does not come from inside of you either. It can only come from God. Only when you have the divine voice ringing in your ears. My child, my beloved child, in whom I am well pleased. Only then do you have an identity that is secure. Because only then does it truly not matter what the people outside of you say. And only then does it truly not matter what you say. So first, gospel identity means a deep inner security. But secondly, it means relational generosity. And I'm only going to take just a little bit on this because next week's sermon is all about this. But let me just say this. One of the main reasons we find it so difficult to get along with each other in society is because our identities are basically insecure. So remember, every identity begins with a core trust, right? A highest good, something that you're living for. If your core trust, the thing that you're living for, if it's anything other than God and the knowledge that that he loves you and that, that his love for you is based on grace, not your performance. If, if your core trust is based on anything other than that, then anytime someone threatens your source of identity, you are going to be threatened and it will destroy your ability to remain relationally open to the people that are threatening you. So, for instance, if your identity is rooted in your role in society or your politics or your looks or your career, or money, or grades, or family, or race, or gender, or even in the fact that you're trying as hard as you can to be a really good person, all of those things are essentially insecure. They can all be threatened, which means, guess what? You can be threatened. 
If you find it difficult or even impossible to remain relationally open to people who maybe they hate you, maybe they oppose you, maybe they just disagree with you. If you find it difficult to remain relationally open to people like that, it's because your identity is rooted in something that can be threatened. But if your identity is rooted in something that can't be touched, you can't be touched. Only then will you be able to stay relationally open to everyone in the world. And I, I, think, I think you would agree with me that our world desperately needs that right now. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the nature of gospel identity. It's a new status. We've seen the uniqueness of gospel identity. It's not based on your performance. We've seen the experience of gospel identity. It gives you a deep interpersonal security and an outward relational generosity. But lastly, how does this gospel identity actually get accomplished? In other words, how does it actually come into your life? You know, we, we talk about this actually every single week, but here's how. You have to see that Jesus Christ is the true son of the father who lost his identity, his status, his security, so that he could give it to you. Because think about it, Jesus had the ultimate status, the eternal son of God. That is a status unlike any other. He had security beyond anything we could possibly imagine. I mean, even when Jesus came to earth, he began his public ministry by getting baptized, which was a way of identifying with us. But when he came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and and the voice of God the Father came out of heaven for everybody to hear. And it said, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Can you imagine what that would have felt like for Jesus? I mean, this was not just some private affirmation that he heard in the privacy of his own home. This was in public for every everyone around him to hear, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Imagine the validation that he experienced. Imagine the the affirmation and the acceptance and the approval that he was experiencing at that moment. I mean, talk about status and security and a secure sense of identity. Jesus had it. All his life that he was here on earth, Jesus always knew God as his father. Every time he talked about God, he always talked about my father, my father this, my father that, my father. And on top of that, every time Jesus Christ opened his mouth in prayer, it was always with the words, Father. Every single time Jesus prayed, he always said, Father, every time except one. Because when he was on the cross, Jesus cried out, not my father, my father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was losing the father at that very moment. His sonship was being revoked. He was losing his status. He was losing his security. He was losing his identity so that he could give you a status and a security and an identity that will never be revoked. That's the gospel. And if you see Jesus doing that for you, remember the father in this parable just bestows this status on his son. The son doesn't deserve it. The son does nothing to earn it. It's just given to him, but not without a cost. Because somebody has to pay the cost for what the son had had done. In the same way, someone has to pay the cost for all the ways that we seek to define ourselves apart from God. Friends, Jesus paid that cost for you. He lost his status, his security, his identity so that he could give it all to you. 
And when you see him doing that for you, there's how you know that you matter. There's how you know that you're loved. There's how you know that your life has value, not because of your performance, but because of his. There's how you get that voice that is now ringing in your ears that says, you are my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. And friends, there is nothing you need to do to get it except to receive it. And like the younger son, to come and to fall on your knees and to admit, that's the hard part, to admit that you're weary, dusty, dirty, beaten, and bedraggled and lost. And to say, like the younger son, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your daughter or your son because of all the ways I've been seeking to define myself apart from you, to admit that you need desperately for the Father to open wide his arms and embrace you in his love and bestow upon you the status that you so desperately long for, not on the basis of your performance because you have none to offer, but on the basis of Jesus' performance for you on the cross. There's the status there's the security, there's the identity that you need. That is an identity that is unassailable, unshakable, unbreakable. And if you have an identity like that, you're no longer defined by what you do. You're no longer defined by what you don't do. You're no longer defined by your success, and you're no longer defined by your failure. You're defined by the Father. Do you have an identity like that? And if you do, are you living out of that identity in deep personal inner security and outward relational generosity towards others? You're no longer defined by what you do. You're defined by the Father. Embrace that identity. Live out of that identity. That, that, only that identity can give you the love and the status and the security that you need. Let's pray.